0: This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast.
1: It's not unusual to see evangelicals make the front page of the New York Times. It's not unusual to see masculinity mentioned on the front page of the New York Times. Or even, for that matter, fitness or the state of Texas. Well, this one has all of it together. It's a New York Times story about a men's ministry called Fitness, Fellowship, and Faith in the headline for Suburban Texas Men, A Workout Craze with a Side of Faith. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the Weekly on Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So how does this kind of loosely knit but rather popular men's ministry make it to the front page of the New York Times?
0: (laughs) Well, I think there's a lot of very interesting news subjects that are looming in the background behind this. But I think first and foremost, we have to state right up front, this was written by a professional religion writer with experience on the beat and a background. Uh, She, Ruth Graham is a graduate of Wheaton College, a background in which she has had a lot of contact with evangelicalism in a wide variety of forms. And I think it's very clear that this was a subject that was intriguing to her. For one thing, I was just very shocked when several paragraphs down into this, this lengthy story, I hit the phrase, I heard that. In the middle, she admits that she is interested in this subject. It's a first-person story, which is extremely rare for a hard news topic in the New York Times. The other thing I was fascinated with is at the top of this piece, which is a part of a New York Times effort to kind of visit personal-level stories all around America, there's a little blurb at the top that says, Why we're here. And that blurb says, we're exploring how America defines itself one place at a time. In a Houston suburb, men have been flocking to a workout group that promises more than just a sweat session. Together, they aim to ease male loneliness. Now, the word loneliness is key. Among the many people that promoted this piece on Twitter was Brad Wilcox of the Institute for Family Studies, and what's kind of lurking in the background of this piece is mountains of data about what's happened to men, and particularly young men, in the last couple of decades with our increasingly digital culture. And In a second, we can talk about some of the subjects that I actually were surprised didn't end up in this story, but there's This reporter, Ruth Graham, with her background on the beat, it's very clear that she knows there are hard news subjects looming behind what she has written, which is a very personal level piece about some men getting together to do guy stuff.
1: So what other subjects are you talking about that are there that make it front page New York Times worthy?
0: Well, let's say in recent years, We've had a lot of national coverage of some valid issues that need to be discussed. Loneliness is one thing. Now, when you take that over into the world of young women and young females, adults, the words are normally more like anxiety. We've heard about the transgender situation. We've heard about not just loneliness but severe levels of depression, et cetera. Now, when you deal with that in the area of men, things tend to go into kind of the world of blue-collar American men, men who are underemployed. They don't have the industry potential that they used to have. They're having trouble making as much money doing guy work you know, that they used to be able to do. So I get the sense that with the suburban location of this, that most of that isn't at play. I don't know how many men in this group are wrestling, for example, with opioids, something that Vance's book, the elegy book that was written by the now senator candidate Vance, J.D. Vance. I think all of that's looming in the background, but the way it's described in this particular piece is primarily people living in suburbs, in homes, that are miles separated by streets from other guys. They're having to work long hours. They're wondering about whether they have any time for their families. And in the middle of all this, they don't have any friends. And simply stated, we live in an age in which loneliness and a lack of friendship has become a crisis for many American men. And so That's one of many subjects that kind of loom behind this. I was frankly surprised, and I don't know whether to praise the story for this or question this. This is also an era when they say that their goal is to promote healthy masculinity. Well, to say that the word masculinity has become controversial in the Trump era would also be another massive understatement. Note the word healthy masculinity instead of like bad masculinity or overboard or jesus and john wayne masculinity or whatever i was surprised to see that that topic didn't get kind of active participation in this thing i was surprised that the story didn't mention the history that has come before in this area like promise keepers you know which put a million men or so on the dc mall a generation ago of an event i happened to cover I was there writing a column about it, but also served as a color commentator for m s n b c of all people who were the only only national network to cover the entire day live so some of the background was not there. I thought it was interesting that one of the men involved in this story, one of the men who's kind of has had his life turned around by f three, has a tattoo on his bicep Republic of Texas which is kind of like code phrase for right-wing politics, Texas is different than the rest of this nation, would America please leave us alone, simply stated, and I think in the end, I want to praise the story for this, it simply made the decision to not go political. When you look at the photos, and this is a, a piece that has, did you look through the photos? There's about like 10 of them.
1: Yeah, I did.
0: Yeah. Another thing I noticed about the photos, did you notice that this group is quite strikingly interracial? Sure. And what that says is another valid and interesting story where some might look at this and go, aha, masculinity, Christian nationalism, white supremacy even, whatever. When you get out into the suburban world of non-denominational, charismatic, Baptist, Pentecostal, all of that, evangelical in the broadest sense of the word, that can actually get very diverse racially. There's a school in Houston, which until a week or so ago was Houston Baptist University, and it's changed its name legally to Houston Christian University. And a friend of mine, the president of that school, Bob Sloan, Dr. Bob Sloan, who used to be president of Baylor, that's a long story too. But Bob Sloan noted in his explanation for the name change that their student body is overwhelmingly ecumenical at the level of churches in the Houston area and from across the country, and he stressed that this doesn't mean we're no longer a conservative Christian university, that we're going to change how we view the Bible, how we change whatever. Well, as someone who has spoken on that campus a couple of times, this is probably the most racially diverse Christian college in America in terms of percentages. The year I was there, I would say that 20% of the student body was black and that 20% was Latino. And then there was another like 15 or 20% that was just called other, and that was Asian, you know, and a whole host of other things representing the incredible cultural and racial diversity of the city of Houston and in the region around Houston with immigrants from all over the world coming there, to make a long story short, that university is minority white. And you you won't find many other evangelical Christian universities in America that can make that statement. Well, when I looked at these pictures, what I saw there was a reflection of those same Houston suburbs that if you're looking for the growing evangelical slash Pentecostal churches of Houston, they're going to be all kinds of people racially. Latino, black, Asian, Filipino, immigrants from Nigeria. You're going to have a wide array of people that in Christian terms are going to start running into each other. So that was one angle of this story that I really wish had been explored, because I think the typical New York Times reader would not read the story, and unless they pay attention to the photos, they're not going to say, wow, this isn't a bunch of white guys in the suburbs hanging out after their right-wing church meets. This is a diverse bunch of guys with a wide array of interesting issues and problems, and I hope, quite frankly, there's some sort of follow-up.
1: So what is F3? What do these groups nationwide actually do?
0: Well, they meet. They, they say they like to meet before dawn or as the sun comes up. They get out ahead of the day, and it's supposedly a, a super intense physical workout. Now, she dedicates some time in this story, some space, to the fact that this is Houston. In the summer, at 5 a.m., it's already 80. 82 degrees after a low I know from living there the low temperature at night might hit 75 And it was probably 95 at 10 o'clock at night They're doing this most of the time. It's outdoors The guys yell at each other they encourage It's a really big deal that after you have survived your first full workout and I don't know exactly what that means But you've managed to work your way all the way through the workout They give you a nickname, and it's a very formal thing. All the other men circle around the guy, screaming at him and yelling at him, and they take nominations, and they come up with a nickname for this new person who's participating. And then it's nonsectarian. Nobody has to hang around for the religious parts. But here's one paragraph. I'll read you two paragraphs. One Friday in August, Mr. Ayala, that's the guy with the Republic of Texas tattoo on his arm, joined about 20 other men in what they called the pre-dawn gloom for the group's regular workout. They grunted and hooted unselfconsciously, razzing one another and shouting encouragements using nicknames generated by the group. Mr. Ayala got his because he trains dog in his spare time. His nickname is Canine. The members also gathered to pray together and talk, building friendships that have extended into their daily lives. When Mr. Ayala separated from his wife, members of the group helped him move. When his relationship with his adult son floundered, they texted him Garth Brooks songs to buoy him up. So it it has some examples in here of stuff that's men's ministry, but it's men's ministry at a much more kind of brutal level. This isn't a chicken wings and pizza, one football game a month bunch of guys. These are people who are expecting to get together on a weekly, at the very least, Daily, in some cases, they get together, and they're doing stuff that really pushes them to get to know each other. And in the Houston area, it mentions that you've got like 20 of these groups. There are 3,400 across the country, whereas, like say, at the start of the pandemic and stuff, there was about 1,900. So this is a growing ministry. I don't know if it has any formal infrastructure. She never says, you know, like there's the national office that coordinates this stuff. Bluntly, one of the leaders says the network's goal is to address, quote, a problem that society at large and men definitely didn't even know they had, middle-aged male loneliness. And I would also add, because this happens to be the subject of the column I wrote this week, and I'm going to work on another one on the same topic next week, back-to-back columns on the same subject. This is a part of a bunch of other issues, one of which we have a marriage crisis in America that's larger than divorce. We're having a crisis of men not being able to get involved and getting women to trust them enough to marry them. We have rampant underemployment of men, and this has led to a crisis in service industries and other forms of industry. We have internet addiction, quite frankly. Everything from something that's some people would say benign, like video game addiction, all the way over to massively documented problems with online pornography. So I'm sure that lurking in the background of the story are some of these hot-button topics, and frankly, a lot of them are topics that churches have struggled to get themselves to deal with. Yet here we have a growing ministry, at least in some major cities, that are wants to talk about these subjects head-on.
1: What does the author of this piece, Ruth Graham of the New York Times, what does she understand that most of her colleagues fail to understand? Why can she write this piece this way?
0: Well, first of all, because it came out of the religion desk, as opposed to, say, the politics and culture desk, it frankly takes the religion element head-on as being a crucial part of the motivations of the people who are putting this network together. And that may not be every single man who's involved, but it's a lot of them. So religion, fitness, fellowship, and faith, the fact that you could put those things together and not have Donald Trump by the third paragraph, is kind of a miracle, a small miracle of journalism in this day and age. I would have loved to have been at the meeting where she pitched this story, to her editors. I think the bigger question is not what does she get. I've already explained. She's a pro. She's a professional religion writer. The issue is not maybe not what she gets, but why don't other writers get it? In other words, if there were 1,900 of these and they boomed up to 3,400, why aren't there other people walking into newsrooms saying, guy, to hear about this weird group that one of my friends has joined. And I went the other day, and these guys turned out to be pretty normal. I think we could be dealing here with a kind of isolationism that occurs between a lot of newsrooms and, frankly, the communities around them. A lot of American newspapers will tell you everything you want to know about new restaurants and nightlife and what's going on at the art galleries and what the latest protest march in downtown is. But if you ask them whether or not there were groups like this or meetings on subjects that are linked to religion that are otherwise newsworthy, the simple fact of the matter is the people in these newsrooms never hear about them. I used to tell my journalism students, you can't dial a phone number that you don't know. You can't look up a group that you've never heard of. At some point, you're only as good as your contacts. Let me just give you an example. Here in East Tennessee, on the newspapers that I see on a regular basis, a march in downtown on environmentalism that draws like 100 people might end up on page one with a big photo. And the reason is because the people in the newsroom have heard about this march, they have friends in this march, they care about the subject. One time they had one of those photos and I was looking around and I went, I wonder if anybody knew that this weekend in the same city there was a meeting at a local evangelical church where more than a thousand people met to discuss what they could do at the practical level to help women coming through our city. They're caught up in human trafficking. Like a 1,000, maybe 2,000 people in the area involved in that meeting. So why didn't it get coverage? Well, some people say, oh, they're biased against religion. They don't want to cover a positive story like that. No, it, it could be the fact that they never heard about it, and they've lost contact with the churches so long ago that nobody in the churches even thought they could call the paper up and tell them about it. Maybe people in the churches have stopped reading the newspaper. So I bring that up to say that, again, this is a plug for why you need skilled, experienced religion writers, people who are willing to build contact networks where they hear about this kind of stuff. And these are exactly the kinds of stories that, frankly, a lot of Americans would like to know more about.
1: So you talked about follow-up. On these sub themes, male loneliness the, yeah. the the theme here she she actually manages to get through a discussion of masculinity without reference to how it's a universally bad thing and has destroyed civilization right, so she doesn't treat it as a foregone ill. she kind of lets the the people she's talking to tell that story. How right. should that be followed up on
0: Well, I think I would follow up with some of the churches in the area and see how the breakdown in family formation and family life, how that's affecting kind of the future of churches and religious institutions in the city. In other words, are there churches that wanted to be involved in this and they're not? Are there churches that were asked to be and they chose not to? I guess I would follow up slightly at the institutional level, but the other thing that I mentioned that I really think deserves some follow-up is the fact that this seems to be a quite diverse network. I think it would be interesting to um, find out if there are African-American churches and Latino churches, which you can imagine what the numbers for those two groups in greater Houston would be, whether they're involved. And you're not doing that to say you're not looking for closet racism in this group. What I'm seeing in these photos is just a natural expression of what Texas— multi-ethnic culture looks like. If you drive down Highway 59 headed back into Houston on a day when the traffic is backed up, which is every day, and you were just to pause and scroll down your AM radio dial, it would sound like you're listening to the translation channel at the United Nations. There are about that many groups different languages, different ethnic groups, different traditions, different cultures in that city. So this is an expression of what a city like Houston really is, which means that if you don't grasp how important this multi-ethnic, multicultural situation in Houston is, you're not actually covering the city, which means you're not covering religion in that city. You're not covering churches in that city. I'm trying to remember which one of the major funerals linked to Black Lives Matter was held in Houston, and it was held in a massive black megachurch. And only like one or two of the stories that I read about it happened to mention that this funeral—I think it was the George Floyd funeral— That this funeral was held in a black church that's affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, there's a shot-down stereotype for you, and yes, there are tensions between the growing number of black churches and some white churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, and that's a valid story. What I think is interesting is to find out, are other evangelical ministries, in the larger Houston area, for women, for men, for young people, for whatever, are they addressing the diversity of the city? Are they finding a way to break some walls down between racial groups and racial stereotypes in their area and are as successful as this one? That, to me, would be the most natural, quick follow-up. And the way you do that would be calling some institutional church leaders in the area, and doing some background homework on that and by the way yeah there's a political story looming in the background there which is that in the state of texas latino voters are some of them are increasingly becoming republican that's a question that you could have asked in this story but i'm glad she didn't that doesn't mean you can't follow up on the nature and emerging view of what a multi-ethnic multi-racial evangelicalism would look like in a state as important as Texas. That's a good hook for a follow-up. And I hope they do it, and man, I hope the religion desk is involved, and that that story isn't turned over to the political desk, who would either twist the religion or ignore the religion.
1: But I must say that this does not fit the accepted narrative about Texas. Yeah, about race, and about evangelicalism. It, it this flies in the face of all three of those dominant n- narratives that populate most media.
0: Yeah, which means, once again, that you had a reporter with the eyes to see the story and a willingness to sit down and listen to these men and write about their lives, allowing them, in some crucial places, to tell their story in their own words. And that's just basic journalism. But in this day and age, a lot of our elite publications, and you don't get more elite than the New York Times. It's, the, most, I think, the most important newsroom in the world, along with, say, let's say, BBC for large parts of the global scene. These are the stories that aren't getting told. And it looks like someone at the Times knows they need to be. Because it mentions that this is a part of a series, you know, that's an attempt to look at how America defines itself. What's the implication there? This is how America defines itself as opposed to how the New York Times has been defining it? Isn't that kind of implied by that statement? We're exploring how America defines itself one place at a time. Well, if you're going to do that, the religion desk better be involved. And you can also get some fun stories out of the sports page and some other stuff. I remember years ago, gosh decades ago now, the New York Times had a reporter in their Atlanta bureau who had a real eye for the South and did some symbolic stories. For example, he went to the national iced tea competition. Who could make the best iced tea? Now, if you've ever lived in the South, you know that iced tea is like a religion, right up there with barbecue. And he was writing about a piece of the Old South that is surviving, even as the South modernizes. An even more emotional story that reminded me of this one was he wrote a story about the fading of the tradition in Texas and the South, the Bible Belt, and maybe the Midwest, that when a funeral cortege goes by, when a bunch of cars go by following a hearse, everyone pulls off the road to the side and lets it go by. And a lot of people will get out of their cars and put their hands over their heart as the hearse goes by or as the rest of the cars go by. And he used this as a vehicle for writing about the changing American South and how Blessed be the ties that bind. What are the ties that still hang on? What Ruth Graham has given us here is we live in a miracle where the ties that bind are breaking. But in extended families, in networks, people are cut off from each other. They're stuck at computer screens all day long. Even the, the places where they used to work as mechanics and everything else, a lot of them are going away. What kinds of groups want to attempt to build new ties. That's an important subject, and that's what a professional religion writer managed to get into the paper. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow
1: at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate in the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks.
0: Glad to be here.
1: I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly.
0: Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.